Nehemiah chapter 3 is our text, and you probably know by now, unless this is your first time with us, we're in the middle of a series, and the theme of the series is, let us rise up and build, and we looked at that specifically last week. That was Nehemiah chapter 2, towards the end of the chapter. And the work is about to begin, and we're going to see how important the gates on this wall really are. We're not going to make it very far this morning on the tour, but uh, we're going to see at least a little bit of the gates, and we'll continue to conclude those as we work through them. You know, I recently read about Stefan Sigmund from Romania. He was so desperate to get himself into the Guinness, the Guinness Book of World Records that he tried, first of all, smoking. He, he rigged up this air filter from an automobile and somehow attached 800 cigarettes to it. And he smoked 800 cigarettes in under six minutes. He thought that would get him into the Guinness Book of World Records. Unfortunately, he discovered afterwards that that book no longer accepts those accomplishments. So he went on to plan B. And plan B was to eat 29 hard-boiled eggs in four minutes. And he was successful. He said, finally, my name is going to be in the books. And then he, re then he realizes that Guinness Book of World Records just prior to that stopped including gluttony records. So he said, well, I'll jump from a 130-foot cliff into a lake. And he did, and he survived, only to come out of the water and somebody told him the record was already standing at 176 feet. Some people are desperate to get their name in a book, to get accolades to get recognition for what they're doing listen brother and sister i want to grab your attention right at the very beginning there's going to be a day where we will stand before the lord's throne in a great multitude and books will be opened and listen stories of the faithful men and women of god will be read and I don't know about you. Now listen, I don't know if this resonates in you. Literally, this was a sermon. That point right there that one day books will be opened and names will be read and stories will be told of the faithful servants of God. That was a sermon from Jerry Falwell years ago. I think 1986 changed my life. So I don't know if that resonates with you, but I don't know if you want one day desperately to hear your Lord and Savior say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. I want that. I want my name in that book. And I want you to want your, your name in that book as well. What we're going to be reading today, starting today, as we take this tour around this wall, our name, names after names being given as books are being opened. Listen, these names are in the eternal word of God because they rose up and built. God will honor his faithful servants. And I hope, I hope this church is full of men and women who are going to hear him say to you personally, well done, good and faithful servant. Wow. Can you imagine that from Jesus? Nehemiah 3 is a foretaste of the recognition that comes for God's faithful servants. And as you've turned there, as we begin to take 
a look at chapter 3, what we're going to do is we're going to go on tour. Nehemiah is going to be our tour guide. And we're going to go around this wall and we're going to stop along the way to pay particular attention to gates. But before you go on this tour, listen, if you've gone on a big vacation, gone on a tour, then maybe you're like my family. Denise and I, we like to get the pre-tour information. We like to know where we're going to stop so that we can pay particular attention to the sites along the way. You want to know the background. If you ever go to Israel, hopefully I'm going to be able to get there one day, but if you ever get to Israel, you'll want to know a little bit about what you're going to be seeing before you get there. Otherwise, you're going to miss so many notable things along the way. So we're going to get some pre-trip information, and here it is. Jerusalem. Jerusalem is... The city is a type of the church of God. When you read about Jerusalem, it was a real city. It was the people of God's abode. But it points forward to our day, Christian brother and sister, as a type of the church of God. Cornerstone is a type of Jerusalem. The church today doesn't replace Jerusalem. There's a whole aberrant theology out there called replacement theology that says God no longer cares about Israel today. It's now the church. Listen, the Gentiles have been grafted into the Jews. We don't replace them. But Jerusalem, the city, is a type that points to the church. And if you're going to understand what it means to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem, repair the gates of Jerusalem, you've got to understand God speaking today the very same thing. These gates are no longer called what they were then. They're called something different. They have massive meaning in our lives. And all around the city, all around the church, listen, all around you, individual believer, must be a wall. And that wall separates us and makes us distinct from the world. If you don't have a wall around you, then first of all, the Bible is saying you can't be saved. The wall is called salvation. You've got a wall. It might be down in rubble. The foundation's still there because the foundation, as we learned, is Jesus Christ. We've got to clear away the rubble and begin rebuilding. But there must be a wall around this church cornerstone to make us distinct from the world. It was a Scottish poet, Horatius Bonar, who said... I looked for the church and I found it in the world and I looked for the world and I found it in the church. That can't be said about Cornerstone. It must not be said about our lives. Now, I don't know your life deeply, Monday through Saturday. I know a lot of your lives and a lot of you know my life. I don't know how far the world encroaches into your life. To be honest and more blunt, I don't know how worldly you are. I don't know if there's a distinction between your life and the life of anybody else living in the world that's hungering after money, hungering after career ambition, 
Investing in the party of the week. I don't know if that's you, but I know this, that there ought to be a wall around your life. There ought to be a wall around this church that says the world can come this far and it can't come any further. We're the distinct people of God. We don't breathe this air anymore. We breathe the air of the kingdom of God. This water doesn't satisfy us. Only the living water does. That ought to be you and it ought to be me and it ought to be this church. And walls serve as dividing lines. The wall around Jerusalem said to the enemies of God, you cannot come in. This is as far as you can make it. And friends, if you have no wall around your life that divides you from the world and makes you distinct from the world, if you have no wall, if it's down in rubble, I can promise you, you cannot feel secure in your salvation and be serving God as a faithful servant. And while walls keep the enemies out, listen, there's now pre-trip information on gates. Here it is. Gates allow the right people in. They allow people into God's presence and to enjoy His presence together with other Christians. You've got walls that say to the world, you cannot come in. The enemies of God, you are barred from our city. You are barred from our heart. You are barred from our church. But here are gates and gates let the people of God in to enjoy his presence. The name that I mentioned a moment ago that God gave to the wall of Jerusalem was salvation. If you think of the wall around your heart, here it is, you're saved. It's written, as we just saying, you're written, you're engraved on the palm of God's hand. And the name of its gates is praise, according to the Old Testament. When we walk through these gates and we come into the presence of God, we're, we're to do that with praise in our lips, praise in our hearts, thanksgiving erupting from our souls. And these gates, listen, they were more than just entry points into God's presence. And this is all pre-trip information. We're about to take the tour. We're going to land on two gates today. We're going to see massive significance of them in our lives. How do you rebuild? I'm going to show you how you do that. But here's the pre-trip stuff you got to know. Gates were more than just entry points into God's presence. Listen, they were where the people of God gathered for fellowship. If you don't like the people of God and you hustle out of this church as fast as you can and you don't spend life on life with your Christian brothers and sisters encouraging one another the more as you see the day approaching. Listen, if that's you, then I've just identified one of your gates is in disrepair. It is burned down. If people have offended you in this church, and you've allowed that to be a grudge in your heart that is slowly festering into bitterness. I'm telling you, your gate is burned down. Your gate is allowing your enemy in. These were entry points into God's presence, but gates were more than that. They were where the people of God 
had fellowship. The elders of a city would stand or would sit up on top of these gates, on the walls and on the towers. We sang this morning, right? That your name is a high tower. They built towers next to the gate. I'll introduce you to that in a moment. But the elders would sit up on these towers and they would rule. They would have courts and they would hold judicial exercises over the people. It was where the people of God's leaders led. It's where the people who could not work, who were handicapped, or those who were called day laborers, who needed work for every day. It's where they gathered at the gates, hoping for work, hoping for people to help them, hoping for mercy. It was where beggars sat. That's why the Proverbs 22 says, Do not rob the poor because he is poor, or crush the afflicted at the gates. It's where the afflicted gathered. If you needed to make a public announcement to the city, you made it by the gates. Markets were installed by the gates. It was the center of commerce. You come through the gates, you get into the life of the people in the city. If you were a prophet of God and you needed to preach the word of God, you would go to the gates and you would declare what God wants his people to hear. They were the entrance into the life of the city on so many different levels. But listen, they were the most vulnerable part of the city. If you wanted to overrun the city, you've got to attack the gates. And if you can have victory in attacking the gates, you find access into the city and you can defeat your enemy. If the gates could be destroyed, the enemies could pour in. And friends, it was a standard battle tactic. Genesis chapter 22, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. If you could possess the gate of your enemy, you've just won the city. This is why our enemies are targeting our gates. This is why Nehemiah spends an entire chapter rebuilding and repairing the gates. Yes, he repairs the wall in between the gates, but the most vulnerable part of the wall was always the gate. And this is why, as I mentioned a moment ago, they were fortified by towers, 2 Chronicles 26. Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate and at the valley gate and at the angle, and he fortified them. You built a tower. The name of our Lord is a high tower. Listen, listen, you've got to know this. That means that he has built it next to one of his gates that he wants in your walls. That name connects to that gate. You call on the name of the Lord. He will protect. He will keep your enemy at bay. On your walls, Isaiah says, O Jerusalem, as God speaks, I have set watchmen. Listen, he's put watchmen. They are the the rulers of the city. They're the guards of the city. And all the day and all the night, they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest. Give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. He's given every church watchmen. They're your elders. They're your leaders. They're your pastors. And their job is to stand up on these gates, look for the activity of the enemies, and speak into your life and speak into this church and lead. Their job is to pray. Never. Look at what it says. Look at me. Look at these babies. I can never compete with babies. I'm a loser. Especially hers. That little girl is so precious. Listen, your watchmen, 
have to give account for your souls. That's why you should let it be a joy for your pastors. I know this is self-aggrandizing. I understand that. Let it be a, a joy for your elders. Their job, they're going to hold. There's going to be books that are open. And I'm going to be held account by Jesus to how well I keep an account of your soul and watch over it. I'm a watchman, so aren't your pastors and elders. Let it be a joy. Let us pray. Don't, don't let us give God any rest. Come before Him constantly praying for your walls to be built back up. So remember, Jerusalem is a type of the church of God. These walls need to be built in our lives as well. Wall builders are to rebuild the gates that the people of God may enter into the presence of God. Listen, with praise and walk His streets with peace. And where there, where there are broken walls and where there are burned gates in our lives, we can't praise God. You can't experience peace with Him or the people of God. So let's get real just for a little bit. I mean, honestly, do you really come to church just to get a real peppy message so you can feel better about yourself? Maybe some of you do. I don't know why you keep coming. I do want you to feel better towards yourself only through the power of the gospel. We are desperate sinners. And God's grace is always greater than our sin. That's how you feel better at yourself. He loves you. But friends, listen, let's be real. I don't know the condition of your walls. What's your family look like? What's the condition of your families? Are your children walking with the Lord? Listen, that's not to make you feel bad. It's to get you to see the rubble and let's start building together. What's your marriage like? Honestly, is it a marriage that is pleasing to the Lord, really? What's your conduct at work like? You're giving your very best to your employer as unto the Lord. What's your reputation with your neighbors like? What's your service in this church like? How overcoming are you with personal sin? I mean, think back this week. Are you coming to church again feeling, I cannot believe I did that again? Lord, how can you be patient with me? Is that what's going through your mind? You alone know between you and God the condition of your walls. I think for many of us, it's time to take serious the call to be a wall builder. So today we're going to pay particular attention to the ten gates. We're going to see that Nehemiah presents them and invites us into the security and the glory of the presence of God. And listen, as we do, remember the words of Psalm 87. On the mount, on the holy mount stands the city he founded. That's us. The Lord loves the gates of Zion. He loves your gates and He loves the gates of this church. He loves them more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. We hope glorious things will be spoken of Cornerstone and of every one of you. God loves our gates. So let's begin there where Nehemiah did. Look at the map behind me. You'll see 
where the sheep gate was located as we read. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Then Eliashib, the high priest, by the way, pay attention to him. You're going to see him feature prominently later in this book. Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. Let's say your walls are in ruin. Let's say that maybe they're intact 90% around the city, but in 10% they're in ruin. Let's say the nine of your gates are strong. They've got bars and they've got locks and they've got bolts, but one of your gates is in disrepair. It's swinging wide open to the enemy. That's where he's going to come. That's where he's going to attack. And if we're to rebuild these walls, and if we're to repair our gates, listen, it always, it always starts at the sheep gate. It doesn't start anywhere else. In fact, listen, Nehemiah could have begun, there's ten gates. Look around the perimeter of the wall. He could have begun anywhere on that wall. He's the one managing this reconstruction effort. He's the project manager And this is where he started. This is where the tour begins. Why? Well, on one sense, if you're a classic military historian, you might say to me, well, Pastor Tim, I know why he started there. It's because every single time Jerusalem was defeated and every time they were attacked, they were attacked from the north. He's starting at the north to fortify their defenses. And that's true, by the way. If you've been over to Jerusalem and if you can see this visually in your mind, there is natural topography on the other three directions. Very difficult to defeat Jerusalem coming from the east, west, or south. If you're going to defeat them, you come from the plateau that's above them and you come down that plateau towards the walls. So there is an urgency to repair the northern perimeter of the of the city, and don't forget Sam Ballot that we've been looking at, his area that he's a governor of is in the north. It's right above Jerusalem in the area of Samaria. So it does stand to reason from a military perspective that Nehemiah is going to begin here for immediate fortification. But friends, listen, there's a much, much deeper and more significant reason, and you need to see it today because it's where we start as well. Look at what he says. Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests. They were the first to get to work. It seems like they had no hesitation. It seems like they were a horse just waiting to get the gate to drop so that they could run, so that they could begin to build. And friends, that's how the leaders of the the church ought to be. They've got to set the example. You know what the hardest thing for me to do? I, I don't know if it's the hardest, but one of the hardest, one of the most... Difficult things for me to do, and I'm trying to teach our elders to do this as well. It's to have the boldness of the Apostle Paul. You know what the Apostle Paul did? You'll read it in his epistles. He spoke to the people and he said, follow my example. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. You know how hard it is to say that to you? Me, who is very aware of my own personal failings and weaknesses, to tell you, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Listen, I don't have a whole lot of confidence in that, but I can at least call you to imitate this part about me. Love the Word of God. 
Don't follow any other man's. Don't follow man's teaching. Follow God's teaching. Get that Bible, pick it up and ingest it, meditate on it. Love it. That beats in my heart. I hope it reflects in these sermons. It's the letter from the king. It's the gospel of peace. It's the only thing that could transform your life. Imitate me, Paul says, as I imitate Christ. And here we've got Eliashib, the high priest, and he's the one with his priests that are setting the bar. They're setting the bar high. They're getting the work. They're saying, listen, let's rebuild this wall. We can do it. Now, do you know what kind of scope this project had for all of you engineer types? There's two theories on this. One's called the maximalist and the other one's the minimalist. The maximum circumference of the wall and the minimal. Here's the maximum one that the wall that Nehemiah built, that's, that's the old city in Nehemiah's day. It gets largely expanded in the days of Christ. And the wall gets largely expanded, but this is it. This is Nehemiah's day. The minimal, the minimal circumference is two miles. Now think through that for a moment. The maximum is two and a half. Think through two miles. Let's take the minimal position. Two miles of rubble has to be cleared away from the foundation. They didn't rebuild the foundation. Nobody does. Christ is the foundation. You just clear the rubble and you begin using the same material to rebuild the wall. Two miles of wall broken down ten gates. Multiple towers, listen, 52 days. And Eliashib, the high priest, and his brothers set the bar high. They said, we can do this, and we will start. And what they begin to build and what they begin to repair was the sheep gate. Listen, the gate... The sheep gate was the one that led to the temple, to the house of God. Nehemiah is going to begin with this gate. If you look at the end of the chapter, he's going to end with this gate. Why? Because it's the gate that points to Jesus, who is the Alpha and the Omega, the author and the finisher of our faith, the beginning and the end. This is the gate that brings glory to Christ. And it was named the sheep gate because it was through this gate that the sacrificial lambs were brought into the city on their way to the temple to be given for the sins of the people. Now you begin to see why this sheep gate begins to point back to Jesus, point back to the cross, pointing to the power of the gospel. If you're going to rebuild your life, and if you're going to help somebody rebuild their lives, listen, you've got to bring them to the sheep gate, back to the cross, and back to the gospel. There's nothing else that can rebuild. Even today, by the way, once in a while, periodically in Jerusalem, there's a sheep gate, a sheep market rather, that is set up next to this. In, in Jesus' day, in John chapter 5, verse 2, it was located near the, the Bethesda pool. Likely, that was the body of the water that the sheep were washed in before they went to the temple for sacrifice. If you've ever been to a sheep farm, you'll know that sheep get into their wool and into their fur and into their hair, all sorts of debris. They would wash them first before they sacrifice them. Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 9, I am the gate 
Whoever enters through me will be saved. The sheep gate is the gate of Jesus. And it's the gate that leads you to the presence of God through the blood of Christ and his sacrifice. If you're going to come into the presence of God, friends, then it must be through the gate of sacrifice. It has to be at the cross of Jesus Christ. It's the gate through which a person is saved and can be into the presence of God. It's the gate that signifies that the Lamb of God will shed His blood for us. It's the starting place. There is no rebuilding a wall if you've not started at Christ for salvation. Listen, I know very well in a group of any size, there's likely people here who have never yet entered the Sheep Gate. You know, I never assume, I don't even assume that the leaders of the church have entered the Sheep Gate. You never could do that. You've always got to be encouraging Faith and letting it spring into fruitfulness. Faith without works is dead. So there's likely here some who have never come into the sheep gate. Who have thought that, you know what, you you work your way into the presence of God. Good works will do it. Church pedigree, I've been in church all my life. I'm a good person. Your goodness can do it. Listen, I'm a parent. I have four kids. And I'm speaking to a lot of parents. Listen, let me just ask you, if there was any other way, fathers and mothers, to save humanity, would you have given your only son to die on a cross? If you could earn your way, and if you could be good enough, and if you could please God enough by your family pedigree and your church attendance to be able to get saved, why would Jesus die? Why would the Father give the Son to die on a wretched, horrible, bloody cross? It's because there is no way. It's through Christ alone that you enter into His presence. If you've not yet entered the sheep gate, you have no wall of salvation around you. But if you've entered the sheep gate years ago, and all of a sudden, years later, you find your life in ruin, then you've got to get back to the sheep gate, clear the rubble, and begin building starting there at the cross. You've walked away from the cross. You know what happens when we walk away from the cross? I do it all the time. I'm pretty sure you do it too. You begin thinking you could do this on your own. You get filled with pride and you begin putting God in a compartment and says, I'll access into that compartment five minutes, ten minutes a day. The rest of the day is mine. I'll give him 10% of my money. The other 90% is mine. I'll give him a little bit of service at church. The rest of my week is mine. That's compartmentalizing God. That's a ruined wall. And if you want to get back to a wall that is secure in your salvation with gates of praise, you start at the sheep gate and realize you can't do anything and neither can I that is pleasing to God in our own power. The only thing that can please God is Jesus Christ working in us. That's the power of the gospel. And if you're overrun with an addiction... And you're immersed and embroiled in a lifestyle that you cannot seem to defeat. And all your efforts seem to just wash away in ineffectiveness. Listen, it's because the power of the gospel, the sheep gate, has been closed. It's been in disrepair. You want to repair it. You want to get back to it. And you want to be at the feet of the cross, at the foot of the cross, and plead for the power of the gospel. Psalm 85, I think, even though it doesn't name this gate, 
speaks of it. It says, steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. I think it's there. That is the cross. That's the vertical and that's the horizontal. That is the hope of our salvation. And if our walls are down, you start at the sheep gate, Christian brother and sister, not to be saved again, because Hebrew says Christ offered was offered once to bear the sins of many. We start at the sheep gate to clear the rubble and get back to the power of the gospel, the hope of our wall being rebuilt. You meet the Lord at this gate. By the way, it was the gate of beggars. It was the gate where people would plead for help. And you ask Christ to carry your paralyzed feet of your broken life or those of your friend and you take them back to the cross. You walk back to the cross. You're carried back to the cross to where the power of the gospel is. Don't miss that this one was built by the priests. Those who administered the sacrifices. Listen, there's a reason for this. Priests were called bridge builders. That's what the word priest means. It means to be a bridge builder. It means to take the hand of God and join it to the hand of a struggling sinner and bring the power of the gospel and redemption to work. And when you've got a friend whose life is in ruin or you're part of a church that has no wall and no distinction from the world, the way you begin is as a priest and you begin building a bridge from God's hand to those in this church and those of your struggling friends. And you bring and pray the power of the gospel to bear. But you might be saying, well, Pastor Tim, you're the priest of this church. No, I'm not. I'm one of them. I'm certainly not the high priest. We sang about him this morning. That's Jesus. I'm no more of a priest than you are. I'm called to preach and I'm called to pastor. We're all called to be priests. Here's what Peter says. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might, might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You see, this is what priests do. They proclaim. They speak the truth. They br build bridges between God and struggling people. And that's your job. That's my job. Whether you're 10 or 80, if you're in Christ, you're a priest. And you draw people back to the sheep gate, priests. And you bring them back into the hope and the presence of God. And you be the first to build. You set the standard high and you say, I'm going to walk with you back to the cross. And we're going to see your wall rise high. Notice they consecrated it and set its doors. It was a permanently set apart gate for holy purposes. Friends, the sheep gate is still the gate, even today where it all begins. And notice that this gate has no locks or bars. You're going to read many of the gates have locks and they have bars and they set them in place. You'll read it next on the fish gate, not this gate. This gate is always open. There is no lock on this gate. It doesn't matter how long you've been away from God. If you're ready to rebuild and you're ready to get back to the cross, you're going to find the gate is open for you. And you can have confidence, as Hebrews says, to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, 
by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. This is gate talking. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Friends, the way is always open to Christ. He will never lock it against you. But the tour goes on. And before we get to the next stop, the next gate, you need to see something that you're going to see over and over and over. And that is a phrase 15 times in this chapter and next to him. Sometimes it's next to them. 15 times this phrase occurs because the work was seamless. It was continuous. It was shared. There were no gaps in this wall. There were no openings for the enemy to get through. They worked shoulder to shoulder, person after family, picking up the work of the other. And friends, that's what it means for us in our day. We all have a part to work. Listen, you all have a portion of the wall. That has your name reserved and it's your job to build it. And if you don't build it, God will replace you and you will forfeit blessings. The church will suffer. You've got a portion. Maybe that portion is nursery. Maybe some of you need to rise up and see how precious all of these babies are and give your time not only to taking care of babies, but to loving the parents and supporting them during the week. Maybe the portion of your wall is women's ministry. It's amazing. Six years ago, we had nothing hardly at all for men's ministry in this church. We couldn't get anything going but a men's breakfast. And meanwhile, women had all of these functions, had all these Bible studies, had all of these activities that we're planning, and all of us elders on the board are going, what is wrong with us men? Six years later, we've got raging men's ministries happening all over this church day after day during the week and hardly have anything going for women's ministry. Maybe your portion of the wall with your name on it is that ministry. Or maybe it's like this girl came up to me who's in college trying to complete as a young mother her electrical engineering degree and she's feeling a call to Africa, her and her husband. Maybe the portion of your wall is outside this church building the kingdom. Maybe it's your neighborhood because you've got neighbors that are going to go to hell if they don't get to the sheep gate. Maybe you've got to bring them to the sheep gate. Maybe it's your co-workers. Listen, we're talking about the kingdom of God of which Cornerstone is one tiny little part. But shoulder to shoulder next to him, we all serve. But it also gets us to think a little bit deeper. Listen, is there anybody in this church? Now listen, look at me for a second. Is there anybody in this church that you would not work next to? Maybe you knew them from a prior church. And you didn't like them then and you don't like them any better now. Maybe they've offended you. I've got somebody in our church who told me last night they have a a relationship that's been broken. It used to be a very, very close one. And last night he went to go say hello during the greeting time and the person wouldn't even look at him, walked right by and greeted somebody next to him. You know how much that hurts, right? Is there anybody that you wouldn't work shoulder to shoulder to? What if somebody came into this church, let's be honest, who is a former pedophile offender, but has found his way to the sheep gate? 
and battles those desires, would you work next to that person, adults? Could you see them covered in the blood of Christ? Who could you not work shoulder to shoulder with? There was one group, and we're going to get to them, Lord willing, next week, who could not work shoulder to shoulder. And they're in the books as well in infamy. And there's another phrase, after him or after them, and this one occurs 16 times in chapter 3. Sometimes shoulder to shoulder means I'm going to pick up after you're done. My portion of the wall has to wait until your portion is done. Maybe after him and after them means that you're likely not going to build all of somebody's life, all of somebody's wall, all of the wall in somebody's messy life. Maybe you're going to come in on stage two. And I've begun to learn me personally to know when my portion of the wall is done. It's often in counseling. When I will tell somebody, I think I've done all I can for you. I've given you all the truth you need to know. Get involved in a men's group. Get involved in a woman's group. Get involved in a life group and learn to live out this truth life on life. I've done all I can to build your wall. And it reminds me that before I became the lead pastor from 1989 to 2006, Dean Carlson was the lead pastor. And Dean Carlson built the wall on the word of God and on the exaltation of Jesus Christ. He infused that in me. So when he left and it became my turn to build the wall, I used the same materials. It's all about the word of God. I'm never going to preach anything other than that. And it's all about exalting Christ. Why would we want to lift up any other name under heaven or on earth? And someday my portion is going to be done and there's going to come somebody else into this pulpit and they've got to use the same materials. They've got to build the wall the same way. That's what it means after him and after them. And it sweeps us into Ephesians 4. We've got to speak the truth in love. We're to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's what it means shoulder to shoulder and after him. So let's be honest. Are you doing your part? Do you realize you have the power to harm this church when you're not serving? When you come here, and you enjoy the worship and maybe enjoy the preaching and you go home and we never see you, you never are involved anymore. When you're not doing anything, you're not doing your part. You're not bringing your neighbors to the fish gate. You're not telling your co-workers about your hope in Christ. You're not doing anything for the kingdom of God. You are bringing the kingdom of God to harm. And some of you, maybe you don't like me right now. I hope that's not true. This is the word of God. And that weight is hard. And let it, let it come down and settle on your shoulders and bend you to humility and back to service. Do your part for the kingdom of God. There's another gate that we have time for and it's going to be much more brief. It's called the fish gate. And as our tour continues, we come to the, the gate through which the fishermen brought their catch. Whether they're fishing in the Mediterranean Sea or the Sea of Galilee, this is the gate through which they brought their fish 
to head to the markets. And we read about it in verse 3. The sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. That sheep gate didn't have them. Because that gate is open for the child of God. The fish gate is lockable. It must be secure because, listen, this is where your enemy is going to come through. This is the first place he's going to come through. If you're going to rebuild the walls in somebody's life or in your own life, yes, you've got to get back to the cross. But the very next gate you get to is the fish gate. What's it mean? Well, immediately it ought to draw you into the New Testament and the words of Christ when he said to his disciples, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Listen, this is where it starts. This is where we've got to immediately go out and we've got to testify and proclaim of the sheep gate to our unsaved friends and family, co-workers and neighbors and schoolmates and bring them back through the fish gate. This is where you bring your catch. It's the gate of testifying. It's the gate of proclamation. It's where we speak truth to one another. It's where we speak truth about the power and the goodness of God. It's where we speak truth to the enemies of God. If you don't testify of Jesus Christ and witness of His work in your life, listen, this gate is down and your enemy is pouring in. Maybe you say, maybe you say to yourself, you know what, Lord, I think I missed an opportunity. Maybe next week I'll tell them about what Jesus has done for me. You just burned your gate. Today is the day of salvation. And all the while your enemy, Sanballat, which is a metaphor and a type of Satan, he's telling you, he's whispering lies into your mind. You don't have a witness that anybody would care to hear anyways. Look at you. Who are you to tell somebody about Jesus? I know how you live. I know the thoughts that go through your mind. I know the desires that rage in your heart. You have no place to stand and proclaim. That's the lies of Sambalat. That is not the truth of God. The fish gate is where you testify in truth that Jesus loves sinners and he has mercy to spare to change your life. And your flesh is going to tell you that you've messed up too many times. The world is going to convince you that you're going to be rejected and you're going to be despised and it paralyzes your mouth in fear. You repair this gate by getting on mission. That's the fish gate. Listen, if you want to write down the fish gate, it's the gate of mission. It's the gate where you proclaim Jesus to all the world. Yes, through the way that we live. And even, yes, through what you speak. You can't just live people to the sheep gate. How do people get saved, Romans says? It's through the proclamation of the gospel. It's through the speaking of your faith, not just the living. The living needs to demonstrate the credibility of what you're speaking. But you can never sit back and say, I'm, I'm too afraid to speak. I'll just be the fragrance of Christ. I'll just be the example and draw them to the sheep gate. Friends, you won't get them there. You've got to draw them through speaking and let your life testify to it. That's the fish gate. 
That's mission. Let's say tomorrow morning you're driving to work and you see a terrible, terrible accident take place right in front of you and thank God His mercy spares you. You stop and you help the accident victims and you're there when the police come. Now listen, they're going to ask you, they're going to ask you what happened because you're an eyewitness. And so you're going to share what you see, what you saw, and you're going to share what happened. And listen, listen, you've got to get this. You're not going to be asked by the police to be a reconstruction expert. You're not going to ask, be asked to analyze the skid marks to determine operator or operational errors or roadway factors or the laws of physics. Listen, you don't need to go to seminary. You don't need to have a theology degree. You don't need to know the Bible frontwards and backwards to be on mission and declare your faith. You just need to be a witness. What has Jesus done to you in your life? And you can testify of that, and that's enough. That's all you need. Because you were there. You're involved. Your testimony has value. Your eyewitness testimony in an accident can stand up in court. Your testimony of Christ stands up in His court. It is powerful, but you've got to declare it. That's the fish gate of mission. You can no longer go to work and say, next week, I'm going to tell them about Christ. You can no longer see your friends of ruined walls and say, maybe somebody will come. Maybe God will bring somebody to help. It's you. You bring them back to the sheep gate and bring them around to the fish gate and get on mission. If you don't get on mission, none of your gates can get repaired. You lay its beams and you set its doors. You make your testimony secure. The more you declare, the easier it gets. And the more secure your salvation will be, the more confidence you're going to have in Jesus Christ. Two gates. I'm sorry we didn't get any further. I had somebody come up last night and she said to me, I saw your verses and I said, well, that'll take five minutes. What else are we going to talk about? There's so much in this. I'm not even getting it all. I'm missing so much, but we, there's so much, but we've got to learn. You start at the sheep gate, you come around to the gate of mission, that's the fish gate, and you testify the power of the gospel. And all the while you're building on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And this morning we realize the tour has just barely begun. We have so much more to learn. Let's stop there and thank the Lord for what he's taught us. Lord, thank you for Nehemiah. Father, thank you for the sheep gate. Thank you for Jesus Christ, the cross, the hope of our salvation. Thank you for the power of the gospel, the power to rebuild our walls and repair our gates. Thank you for the fish gate, Lord, that we get on mission, that we become followers and fishermen of you, that we testify and declare the gospel, the hope of our salvation. Lord, help us to learn that we work shoulder to shoulder. We work one after another. This wall could be built. Lord, give us success, we pray. As Nehemiah prayed, give us success today. It's in your name we pray. Amen.